Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Douglas Wilson. You are you, and this is episode 299. 299, can you believe it? So, today I want to begin by discussing uh, something that was just intruded into my world recently. I, of course, read uh, C.S. Lewis's essay, Bulverism, many years ago, and I've read it a number of times uh, since. Lewis coined a particular informal fallacy uh, and tagged it, well, he coined the name for a particular informal fallacy, and he called it bulverism. And um, and in calling it bulverism, what he, what he was doing was identifying the fallacy of answering someone's position by simply explaining how it was that he came to adopt that position. He named this after uh, a fictional character, Ezekiel Bulver, who was a young boy who heard his mother say to his father, who'd been na- maintaining something, some geometric proof or other, and his mother said, oh, you just say that because you are a man. And so the little um, boy, Ezekiel Bulver, realized, all I have to do, I don't have to answer anybody. All I have to do is explain how they got so silly. And this this uh, fallacy intruded upon my notice again recently uh, when we had the um, council and the presbytery meetings of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, uh, which just concluded uh, this last week. But in the run-up to it, a controversy online erupted over uh, some proposed memorials that our presbytery, Knox Presbytery, had proposed, and a memorial that another presbytery, Huss Presbytery, our international presbytery, had proposed, all of which addressed the issues of kinism and anti-Semitism, ethnic tension, and so on. And the thing that was striking about the controversy was the absence of people trying to engage with the arguments that were embedded in these memorials, the statements that of uh, that were being the statements being made that were grounded in scripture and a particular worldview and the the reaction was sheer bulverism you guys are considering this because this is simply performative language and your virtue signaling you are trying to get the liberals to like you so what basically the the idea is that in our modern secular age Anti-Semitism is the ultimate no-no. Racism is the ultimate no-no. Any kind of expression of affection for your ethnicity, if you're white, is verboten, and and so on. And this is sort of the this is the orthodoxy of our time, the orthodoxy of our era. Now, it it just didn't occur to anybody apparently to think that we were simply trying to reflect what the Bible teaches. What does the Bible teach about the Jews in Romans 11? What does the Bible teach about them? Are they beloved by God on account of the patriarchs? The answer is yes, they are. Are they currently in covenant with God through Christ? No, they are not. They are olive branches that have been cut out of the olive tree. Is there a promise that they're going to be grafted back into the olive tree? 
because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable? Yes, there is. And uh, going over to Galatians is, um, what do we say about the Jews who reject Christ? Well, Paul says that they're in covenant with Hagar. He says these, there's the slave woman, Hagar, and there's the free woman, Sarah. Those who accepted Christ, those who believed in Christ, are sons and daughters of Sarah. Those who rejected the Messiah are sons and daughters of Hagar. And Paul argues that this covenant under Hagar is a covenant of bondage. It's a, it's a covenant of slavery. And there's no indication in the text that these chains are going to evaporate, that this is all going to just go away as time, as time goes by. No. Basically, the bottom line here is there's a substantive biblical case. And this biblical case, this particular take on Romans 11, is something that was put on the map by the Reformed, by Reformed Christianity. There's long-standing tension between Christians and Jews. And there are times where the Jews have been the bad guys, as in the first century. And, and by bad guys, I mean, I'm not talking about belief in the Messiah or not. I'm talking about persecutors. So in the first century, the Jews were the persecutors. In the 600s, Jews were the aggressors and the, and the persecutors. In the medieval pogroms, the uh, sin ran the other way. It was Christians who frequently attacked the Jews and, and violently and in vile ways. There's been a long and tenuous history between Christians and Jews. But I think it has to be said that Protestantism, and particularly the Reformed wing of the Protestant faith, has been, has been a standout representation of distinguishing themselves from the Jews. In other words, the Jews are wrong in their rejection of Christ. Every Christian, to be consistent, has to confess that, has to acknowledge that. Well, at the same time, it was the Reformed that developed this understanding of Romans 11, that exegeted Romans 11 in this particular way. Philosemitism of this particular Pauline kind is a distinctively Reformed attribute. You see it in the Geneva in the notes of the Geneva Bible. You see it in the Westminster Larger Catechism. You see it in Rutherford. You see it in Mather. You see it in uh, Hodge. You see it. You, you see it. <laughs> yeah. This uh, in Perkins. This is something where the Reformed have distinguished themselves, and this Reformed distinction was developed. Began to take place in the time of, with Bootser and with Beza, it, it began to shape up in a time when anti-Semitism was still perfectly acceptable. You didn't lose any, uh, you didn't lose any social standing in, uh, in Reformation Europe through that particular kind of anti-Semitism. This was exegetically, theologically grounded. There are, there's a reason for it, in other words. Always will be God. So continuing on with the podcast, episode 299, we now come to our little hamartiology segment. As we've conducted our study of words for sin in the New Testament, a pursuit that we're calling hamartiology, we find that we've come across a number of words that can describe sinfulness, but not necessarily. This is one of those words. Most of the time, thelema 
thelema, T-H-E-L-E-M-A, simply means will, and the moral aspect of it would depend on the nature of the person willing. For example, Paul says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, thelema there, the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1.1. Nothing wrong with that will, right? It's the will of God, and as the will of God, it is altogether pure. There's one time when the KJV translates it as pleasure, and it is a righteous pleasure. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure, Thelema, they are and were created. Revelation 4.11. But while most of the time it simply means will, there's one place where it means desire, and that desire is understood in a sinful way. Here it is. Ephesians 2.3 among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires, thalema, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as the others. So there's that phrase, fulfilling the desires, thalema, of the flesh and of the mind. The desires here are understood to be sinful because of how Paul frames them. If we were Greek speakers, we could speak of a desire for Bible reading and a desire for pornography, and we could use the word thelema in both instances. But because this is a fallen world, in the vast majority of cases, there will be something wrong with our desires. They will be tainted in some way. Note that the word desire in this place fills out the meaning of both flesh and mind. These sinful desires are desires of the flesh, but they are also desires of the mind. An example of the former would be sexual lust, and the latter would be something like pride or ambition or conceit. God don't never change. He's God. So, continuing on with our podcast, episode 299, we come to our book review section. And today I've selected to briefly review a book by Joel Webbin called Fight by Flight. Fight by Flight. Joel Webbin is a. Uh, a pastor. He was a pastor for a number of years in California. He um, has uh, a ministry called Right Response uh, Ministries, and he wrote a small book called Fight by Flight. And uh, this book is a um, defense of leaving California. Like I said, he was a he was a pastor in California for a number of years, and he and a number of his parishioners uh, pulled up stakes and moved to Texas pulled up stakes, and moved to Texas. And he is basically giving a brief introduction to the case that can be made for that kind of departure. Now, it's, it's, very, it's a good book in that uh, he's not arguing in a one-size-fits-all sort of way. There are people who are called to go to California there are people who are called to remain in California, and there are people who are called to depart from California. There are all sorts of, and, and there are all sorts of reasons, some of them being the same reason. Let's say you have elderly parents who are getting on and they need, and they need someone in their family to take care of them, and they live in Texas and you live in California. Well, if you leave California and part of your reason is to go be with your folks and take care of them, that's a noble and good reason. But that same reason could be uh, why another family remains in California. Their parents are there, and their parents are not in a position to move, and someone needs to watch out for them, and so their kids stick around, their kids stay. So notice you've got the same reason for staying, 
and the same reason for going. That's why it is important for us not to adopt a one-size-fits-all approach to these things. But another aspect of this, and you can see this in the um, title of the book, Fight by Flight, is that leaving a place that has abandoned itself to various forms of insanity is a way of applying pressure. In other words, one of the things that the progressive mindset wants to do is assume that they are sitting on top of an endless aquifer of wealth, an endless aquifer of money, and that that this is somehow just our birthright, and they can tax and they can appropriate and reassign and redistribute as it pleases them without it having any impact at all on the behavior of the people that they are pillaging. Uh, this is what Thomas, the great Thomas Sowell calls the chess pieces fallacy. The idea that you can just pass a law confiscating a bunch of wealth on the assumption that the people whose wealth you're confiscating are just going to sit there on the board like so many inanimate chess pieces. Like they're not going to anticipate the tax hike. They're not going to anticipate the change in regulation. Well, no, what they're going to do is they're going to leave. And what happens when you get to a certain level of departures, that starts to have an actual impact. And sometimes you're going to get to the point that where you get to the level of an impact that the, the rulers who are conducting this madness can actually see. They can actually identify it. Oh, we're, we're turning California into the next Venezuela. Now, sometimes the desire to turn it into Venezuela is the point. Sometimes the people are so blinded that they don't see that that's what's happening. They, they just think that, that whatever happens is, is the result of bad luck or whatever. But there are, there are people who can read the tea leaves. They can, there are people who can see that this is not tenable, this is not sustainable. And so one of the things that productive, hardworking, industrious, entrepreneurial Christians can do to apply pressure to Portland, let's say, or apply pressure to California is to leave. So if you want to go if you want a book uh, that goes through some of the basic reasoning when it comes to this sort of thing, Fight by Flight by Joel Webin. <laughs>